here's the conversation we're going to talk about in John chapter 20. It's the only, he's the only gospel writer that records this conversation. It's not a long conversation. It's the, it's the exchange that Jesus had with Thomas. Um, and we're going to look at chapter 20 leading up to verse 24. That's where we're going to start reading. But if you start from the very first verse of chapter 20, let me just share a timeline what's going on here. Um, Jesus has been crucified and taken off the cross Friday evening. Uh, before Sunday, I'm put in a tomb, and the tomb has been sealed with a stone by uh, the governor of, of the area of Pontius Pilate because the high priests and all are so worried someone's going to tamper with the grave and declare Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, even they knew that there was a story out that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, and they were afraid. So they had this tomb, this cemetery, sealed off. And the women are, this tracks it at the start of chapter 20, the women are going to the tomb with spices, and this is their way of embalming. Uh, you know, we would use embalming. They would use spices that it would apply to the, the corpse over a period of time to take care of, of the decay and everything. So the ladies were going to the tomb to do that, and their conversation was around this. They, what are we going to do? The stone is there. We, who are we going to get to move the stone? So they get there, and the stone is already moved. Nobody is there. There's no, there's no soldiers. It's no one. And to their amazement, they look inside the tomb, and there's no Jesus. There's no corpse. There's no body. And so John records that Mary Magdalene came to tell him and Peter what she had found, what the ladies had found at the cemetery. So they take off running, and uh, John, I don't know why John records this. He outran Peter. Maybe that was this moment as like, you know, the guy just can't run like I can run. I don't know why he included that. But he gets there, he stops, he doesn't go in, and Peter just barges like Peter is. He just barges on in, and he's looking and he sees the burial wrappings that Joseph and Nicodemus had wrapped Jesus in when they took him off the cross and prepared him for burial. They see those wrappings and they see the cloth that wrapped around the head of Jesus laying there all in place, but no body, no corpse is there. And it says that it gives the kind of like in a parenthesis, you know, that they really believe something happened there. Now, who wouldn't believe that something had happened there? It's not no corpse, but the grave clothes are there. So, it's, it's, you know, you can deduce from that that really something pretty neat happened here. So they leave, but Mary stays. And she's brokenhearted. She's weeping because she feels like somebody has violated that sacred burial place and violated the body of Jesus by removing him and taking him somewhere. In that instance, Jesus appears to her, but she doesn't recognize him, which kind of leads us to think that maybe, maybe when we're resurrected, we'll be improved. You know, and maybe, maybe we'll have to talk before someone recognizes him. She thinks that maybe the person she sees is responsible or has a hand in removing the body from the tomb. And so she's asking him, if you've, if you've done something with him, let us know where he's at. And then he calls her name in this exchange, and she realizes it's him. And she calls him Rabboni, my teacher, my master. 
And so she heads back to tell. I mean, this is, prob this is probably just happening within, if not minutes, hours. So she heads back to tell the disciples, uh, I've seen him. I've seen the Lord. He's alive. And at that point, we're going to pick this up in verse 24, because the Lord has appeared to them later that evening. I think around verse 19. So later that evening, Jesus appears to them. He comes to them and he shows them his hands. He shows them his side. And, uh, and then they realize the same day, this is the same day, same Sunday, that he appears. Pick it up in verse 24. But Thomas was not part of that gathering. But Thomas, also known as Didymus, both of those words mean twin. So he must have had a twin. One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But this is what he said to them. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, seven days later, his disciples were in the house and John says, Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked and Jesus but though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And this is kind of a neat thing because more than likely Jesus is either saying this in Aramaic or Hebrew, and they're just writing it in, in English or in Greek, and we translate it, Peace to you. But it's the common greeting that Hebrews and Jewish people say to each other. They say, Shalom Aleichem. That means peace to you. That's, that's their hello. It's actually a blessing. And this would really be that translation, Shalom Aleichem. He just comes in and greets them. We think maybe he's just saying this so that they would be calmed down and, you know, just calm down, but it's okay. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. But this was a common greeting. He says, Peace be to you. And he says to Thomas, he turns to Thomas, and this is what he says to Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied to him saying, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, the last two verses are not just add-ons. This kind of lets us know why John is recording this. He said, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, I read that so that to give you a heads up why these things, why these particular things were written. John writes his account of the life of Jesus because... Uh, extreme skepticism had infiltrated the church, mostly through the Gnostics. The Gnostics were bringing bad theology into the church, and this is what they were saying. The physical is, is inherently evil. The physical world, the physical body is inherently evil, so Jesus could not have come in one of these. It must have been a phantom. And as you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, this is where John says, Anyone who does not believe that Jesus is coming in the flesh is not of God, right? So the Gnostics, he's writing this to deal with why do people believe? 
And the Gnostics were like the metaphysical. They were like the Christian science or the Church of Scientology. They, they dealt with the metaphysical aspects of life and not with the physical. So John is recording these things. He says, you know, he did a lot of other things too that I didn't record here. It was to get us to believe. And, and I'm recording what I'm writing to get you to believe, to get you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God and he came in one of these. He came in one of these bodies. Well, let's go back and look at that exchange between Jesus and Thomas. He says, are you going to preach a whole message out of that? Yes, I'm going to try. He knows that Thomas didn't accept the report of the disciples, right? He knows that. He knows what Thomas said. And I think you have to go back in verse 25 where, you know, he says, unless I see the nail marks. Because it, it didn't say this, but when Jesus appeared to the ten without Thomas, what did he do? Before we, can we just kind of like talk about Thomas without putting that nickname on him for the whole service? Jesus came to the other ten physically, and what did he do? <laughs> Why did he show him his hands? And why did he pull back to show them where the spear went into him? Because they weren't mighty men of faith. They were struggling with what went on in that tomb. In some regard, they were really struggling to believe that the one they saw hanging on the cross Friday was indeed alive. Because he didn't look like a human being normally looked. And so it seems to me that they must have told Told Thomas, well, we saw his hands and we saw his side. And, and this is why he says, unless I see him, but he's elevating the proof, isn't he? He says, I'm going to need more than just seeing it. <laughs> now, I don't think he was looking at the ten guys and says, you're all lying. I don't believe a word you're saying. I don't think it was so much attack on them and what they were saying he was, he was exposing his own severe doubt. He was saying, I, I will believe too, but this is what I require. I just don't need to see him. I need to touch him. I need to make sure it's not a figment of my imagination, but if I can see and touch him, if I can't do that, I am done with believing this. Well, you know Thomas was like that because he was from Missouri. Paul, I just threw that in for you and your family. The show me state. But why did Thomas declare that? Why, I'm not, I don't think we can get into his head today, but I think the, the thing that's going on with Thomas and why he's so dramatic is that he doubts within himself that this is actually happening. I don't think he's looking at these other guys and says, you're, you're untrustworthy. You know, you never tell me the truth. It's not that at all. It's like he's struggling with his own doubts. Several years ago, um, you know, I, I can tell you the exact date that this happened. It was November the 6th, 2009. About a month before that, I was sitting in Barnes & Noble, and I was going to meet Kelly for coffee at Barnes & Noble. So, you know, the cheapskate that I am, I went and got something to read while I'm waiting and I just go and pick up this book. It, called the, it was called The Prodigal God. So I'm sitting there reading The Prodigal God. And, and the owner of Gospel Supply that 
is now Lifeway, came up and started talking to me and says, uh, you know what, you really need to read a book by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God. And I says, Timothy Keller, where have I heard that name? And I looked down and, and I had the prodigal God. I says, oh, this is the God? And he says, yes. He says, well, that's a good book too. But he says, you really need to read The Reason for God. I started reading The Reason for God and, and Alabama is going to play LSU here at Alabama on November the 7th, 2009. Why does that stick in your mind? Because The Reason for God was part of that weekend to me. Because, see, we were, we were going to put an inflatable, we had one of Billy Dukes' inflatable things. We was going to blow that thing up. We we're going to have, you remember that? We had a big gathering, about 40-something people from our church. And we weren't going to go in the stadium. We we're just going to have it on the screen and we're just having a good time. And, uh, you know, Julio Jones caught the winning pass, by the way. But to me, to secure the, the spot, to secure the spot we needed for that inflatable, I took a lawn chair out there with my book and set myself down in that lawn chair until we were allowed, you know, according to the rules, to put up everything. And while I'm sitting there reading, the reason for God, this Alabama student came up, a young man, very athletic-looking young man. He came up, and he says, you got a light. And I said, excuse me? You got a light. I said, a light? He said, yeah, for, for smoking. And I said, you smoke? <laughs> I said, you, uh, you, you look too athletic to be smoking. And he says, oh, it's only socially. I only do it when we smoke cigars when Alabama has home games. I said, so it's kind of a, you know, a cultural thing around you. No, it's not that. I said, I wanted to say, yes, it is. So he's standing in front of me, and he's from Mississippi, and all of a sudden I look down, and I, and I see the book I'm holding, and I said, hey, have you ever seen this book, The Reason for God? And he said, no. I said, this is an incredible book. He said, do you know that you cannot have doubt without faith? And he said, what? I said, you cannot have faith and doubt separately. They, they kind of go together. He says, how is that? I said, because if you hear something and you doubt it, it, mainly, it means that you believe something else. Doubt is not in a vacuum. It has to have a reason to pull back and says, you know what? I don't trust that report. I don't trust that person. You believe something else. And he said, you know something? We just talked about that in a philosophy class at Alabama. I said, see there? This guy's all over, and I had a chance to witness to him. But this is something that Timothy Keller said in that book on doubt. And I want you to look at the screen, and I want you to read it because he talks about faith. Faith without some doubts is like the human body without any antibodies. And when you finish reading that, it lets you know why doubt is important. Now, what Thomas had was not healthy. Let me, give you, let me give you a healthy example of why doubt can be a good thing. All right? In light of that, if you're going to be able to engage people in conversation who have doubts about your faith, you need to be able to express why you believe what you believe. And not just say, well, I believe. I just believe. 
can you express it and explain it less? So what Paul, uh, what the writer said, and I think it was uh, Peter said, be ready to give an explanation of the hope that's within you. So doubt is like it causes you to search and research. Listen, listen here's the example. Would things in Eden turned out differently if Eve and Adam had had a healthy doubt of what the serpent was saying? What got them in trouble? They believed what he was saying. There was a point that, and, and maybe I can just encourage you, you need to exercise some doubt sometime. Sometimes people tell you something and you're like, I don't know about that. My daughter said to me one time, says, Daddy, do you have to, do you have to comment on everything when we're watching television? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I can't help it. Because Brenda hears me talking to the television all the time, and, and I'll hear something. I said, that's not true. That's false. They're lying. And the most common thing, I said, they're plastic. They're not real. They're not shooting straight. Why do, why do we need a healthy sense of doubt? Because you can hear something enough that you start believing it just because you're hearing it enough. And let me give you one of the worst examples or the most tragic examples of what I mean. How could a leader of a country create such a, a national rejection of an ethnic group within that country that the government could seize their businesses, seize their homes, seize their assets, and head them off into a slum and then cart them off into concentration camps and kill them like they're lower than animals? How could... And Adolf Hitler get a national movement to okay that through television. Through television. They made movies showing people with mental retardation and said this is, this is the effect of Jewish genes. They showed people with disabilities, this is the effect of Jewish genes. They are contaminating our society. The Aaron race is the perfect race, and we're having these disabilities and these, disform these deformities because of the Jewish blood that's been infiltrating the German people. And they did that so much that even the Lutheran church went along with it. That any priest in the Lutheran church that had a Jewish background, any Jewish ancestor whatsoever, was removed from ministry. Why? Because they heard it. We need, we need to exercise a healthy dose of doubt sometimes. But what Thomas was exercising was not healthy. You pick that up in verse 26. And you see that Jesus came in and he turns to Thomas and he says, All right, Thomas, put your finger here in his hands. See my hands. Reach your hand and put it into my side. And I love this. Stop doubting and believe stop doubting do you mean that you're capable of stop doubting undoubtedly Jesus was telling him stop doing this stop asking for visual and sensory evidence believe because of what you know and Thomas did not need to do what Jesus said, did he? 
This is, I love this. My Lord and my God. He didn't say anything. He didn't say, I'm sorry. I should have, I should have known better. He was so moved by Jesus reaching out specifically to him and says, you want proof? Okay, here it is. Touch my hands. Feel my side. It's, it's really me. And he doesn't need to do that. You, you see, all along, Thomas didn't need to do that. But he had convinced himself. He had convinced himself that he couldn't really buy into that until he himself had proof. Other renderings of that and other translations that you must not doubt but believe. Don't be a doubter but a believer. Cease this unbelief and have faith. You must not doubt. Doubt no longer. Stop your doubting and start believing. And I love what one translation said. Call a halt to your progressive state of unbelief. In other words, he's like, Thomas, stop it. It's like you're telling your children, stop it right now. He's telling Thomas, stop this way of looking at things. And it just wasn't about the resurrection. He was talking to what Thomas had become. Because this, this is such a great, this is why these books like this are so good. Because what he actually was telling let me tell you this. Doubt is the negative in the original of faith. And he's telling them, stop being the opposite of faith, which is what? Faithless or unbelief. But those are adjectives. Doubting, they're not, they're not participles. They're not verbs. What does that tell you about Thomas? It wasn't an activity that he was doing. It was what he had become. And the very word, the imperative word, is the word to be. And Jesus in the name says, stop being a doubter. Start being a faither. That's not normal grammar, but that's really what he said. Start being a person of faith. You're over here and you're be- you become something that you're not. I think that's what the Lord was saying to him. This is not you. You're, you're going in a direction that's not you. You're, not, you're one of the whole. You're one of us. Why do you need something different than the rest? The Lord, and, and this is five words, but this is translated from like seven words. And what Thomas said was emphatically, he said, the Lord, mine, and the God, mine. He was like, you're my Lord, Kyrios, you're my Theos, you're my God. And he was saying, I'm yours. I'm, I'm done with whatever I had become. I'm in. I belong to you. How about that? Thomas is saying something leaving no doubt. And we tag him with that nickname, don't we? But that's, that's not really fair to him because he was never again challenged by that. His doubt. In fact, if the Davises were here, Vernon Sarah Davis, they could tell you that Thomas made an impact in southern India, in the state of Kerala. He preached all the way to southern India. As far as we know, outside of Paul, making it to Rome. And and India is a long ways away from the Holy Land. He made it all the way to southern India in Kerala. And there's still a body of believers there that track their community of faith to the believers that Thomas established. 
He was killed when opposition rose up and they ran a spear through him. But when you look at him, you say, he never gave up on that, my Lord and my God. We live also in a day of easy believism. Just believe, just say the name, but it doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter what you follow through. The reason why what he said is so profound is that he not only said God was his, that Jesus was his God, which is divinity, but he also said Jesus is my master. He's my curiosity. He's my Lord. He governs me. And we, I heard someone ask, why, why wouldn't someone want God in their life? When you're praying for some people that are lost and it doesn't seem like they have any interest in God. My brother was like that for a long time. Uh, why wouldn't anyone want God in their life? And, and my, I was thinking this. It's because there's not room for him. They're already sitting on their own throne. They're their own God. And the reason why they don't sense a need for him is that they don't need him. And the easy believism today is, let God be your safety net. Let him be the one who catches us in you taking risk and doing things in your life, and, and he's going to be there to catch you. And, and, and no matter whether you want him to be Lord of your life or not, and that's a false perception of the Lord. Let me just share this in closing. Brandon, if you can come to the platform. You see, each of us, I, I don't think, and I've watched debates. i tell you the truth, I don't like debates. I don't like presidential debates, but I don't like watching, you know, the debates on atheism and Christianity and Richard Dawkins and all this. I, I really don't get anything out of arguing it. I understand why they why do it, but you're not going to convince Richard Dawkins of Jesus by debating him. You're not. The only way anything's going to happen is that he comes to faith on his own. Nobody can argue him to faith. We can't prove to him that Jesus saves us, but neither can he prove to us that Jesus isn't real. You see that? It's, it, it's, there's a no-win situation there. But each of us have to come to faith in our own experience, just like Thomas is kind of like an example of us. You know, we might hear somebody else say something, but we want to know it ourselves, right? Is that so wrong? Is that we want to we know that for us. It's good for you. That I think he was probably saying, good for you. I'm glad. I'm happy for you, but I need more than that. And that's not that uncommon with us. You know, my mom became a believer before I arrived on this earth. And she lived for the Lord. And my dad came to know Jesus when I was too little to remember. So all I know growing up was two people who prayed, who prayed not only over meals, but if you were sick. I mean, I, I think I had an appendicitis attack when I was about 10 years of age one morning. And my mama went and got some butter and smeared it on my forehead and said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And I'm like, my side's still hurt. She says, you go and get on the bus. You'll be just fine. So I go out to the bus like this, you know, like, and, uh, you know, it's probably she got arrested for that now, but, you know, as the day went on, I got to feeling better. 
And then I was pastoring our first church in Lake City, Florida, and I had appendicitis attack. I didn't know it was that in the middle of the night. And I thought, and when they told me at the emergency room, you got a you got a appendicitis attack. I said, Oh, I'll go home, and if it doesn't if it doesn't get any better, I'll come back. I said, No, you're not going anywhere. So I had an appendectomy. I thought, Okay, either my faith is not very good, or Brenda's faith is not very good, because she prayed for me. <laughs> but but maybe maybe God was doing something in my life because when the nurse came to get me out of bed. And I told her, I says, I'm hurting too bad to get up. She says, get up. I said, I'm hurting too bad. You're getting up. And she drugged me out of that bed. And I'm going down. I says, you're hurting me. This is hurting me. She says, oh, stand up. It's not hurting you that. And she was arguing with me. I says, who are you? And she knew I was a pastor. She says, you're a pastor. I said, so that doesn't mean I don't hurt. And so, you know, she did her thing, and I went back in bed. I said, that's cruelty. That's cruelty right there. But you know what I learned from it? And maybe this is why the Lord spared me of having an appendectomy done when I was 10, is that as I laid there and people one by one came to see me from the church, I'm thinking, please leave. Please leave. Please pray and leave. And I'm thinking, that, please leave. Please leave. Leave. You know, I'm like, if I think it maybe hard enough they will leave but they didn't leave i tell you what happened though when i got well enough to go home i told her i says never again will i go see someone in the hospital and hang out like we're having a party i will pray and leave <laughs> so everybody i've ever visited in the hospital you can thank the lord that i had an appendectomy when i was 20 something years of age and i was such a wimp about it but that's, where, that's how we grew up. We, we grew up around people of faith. I, I thought the family I had was normal. That my dad and my mom loved God and they loved us and they encouraged us and they prayed over and he, he came to all of our school events and he was such an encourager and I thought that was like normal. And then I had to learn from other people, you know, you got great parents. I said, I do? Yeah. Your mom is incredible. I said, yeah, I think so. Oh, she is. I said, really? Okay, great. I didn't have anybody to compare her with. But all these other people that was around her said, your mom's an awesome woman. I said, yeah, amen. She's great. She's the same all the time. She's praying all the time, singing and whistling. She's doing something all the time, singing songs, praying, praying in the spirit. But you see, none of that saved me. None of that saved me. We're going to have a little confession time, so if you can go ahead and start. I have a confession time because none of that saved me. It was when the Lord spoke to my own heart and I realized that my sin was making me away from God. As a kid, I suddenly realized that there was a sin factor and I needed to make sure that was taken away. I didn't understand all the things about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, but I did know this, that I had a dread of being away from God. And what prompted a nine-year-old to get up and walk to the altar by himself in a revival, a kid that did not want any public attention whatsoever, but I was pried out of that bench that day 
because I wanted to know him. I wanted to know I'm covered. I wanted to know peace in my life. And it happened that night. I was changed. And I could say that Jesus not only is my mother's Lord and Savior and my daddy's Lord and Savior, he is now my Lord and my God. We can say that if we've experienced what Thomas experienced. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray over you, and then we're going to have a confession time. Lord.